What is going on? Welcome to another Friday edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I am back after a day off yesterday. I'm Jamie Dodd. Of course, my co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, also covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Drance, still on the road. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And, of course, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Drance, how's it going, man? It's good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back, Jamie. I uh, didn't do well without you, so <laughs> we needed you. <laughs> Allison did. You did just fine. You did just fine. Yeah. Don't worry. Don't beat yourself I up. I mean, aside buddy. aside from the first five minutes where I couldn't pronounce a single word, um, my my facility with Dunbar Lumber remains a buddy. true true struggle. Well, you're you're a you're a true member of the 650 team when you struggle to <laughs> to get through the Dunbar Lumber read so, without mispronouncing something. So I, I I've been a guy. I grew up in Vancouver, right? And I always said pasta. Sure. Right, pasta as opposed to pasta. Yeah. And then I married an Italian woman out in Ontario. Right, very Italian family, and all of a sudden I started getting make, made fun of a ton mm-hmm. by you know my in laws for using pasta, pasta. So I had to learn how to say pasta, and then when I learned how to say pasta properly, I started screwing up saying pasta salad. Right, I couldn't say pasta salad anymore because I couldn't change from one emphasis to the other so i was like saying pasta salad pass the pasta salad and it took me like two years to learn to relearn how to say pasta salad truly i needed you yesterday we're glad to have you back. oh that's fantastic i am glad to be back and uh, again 650 650 is the dumbbar lumber text line get your thoughts and questions in uh ahead of a very fascinating, very big, significant, whatever you want to call it, weekend for the Vancouver Canucks. The spotlight is going to be on this team, on this franchise, in a number of different ways. Of course, starting with playing in Toronto on Hockey Night in Canada, and then, of course, it is Hall of Fame weekend, and already the press conference uh, happening today. The actual induction will be on Monday, but you know, Daniel Sedin and Roberto Luongo already in Toronto. We know Henrik's not there yet because of an illness, but seems like he's on track to be there uh, for Monday's induction. And it's not just them. It's the rest of the hockey world that's in Toronto right now, right? And, uh, you know, we've, we're seeing some announcements come out. Uh, we might touch on the World Cup announcement a little bit later on the show. But this is about as bright as the spotlight gets, at least in November, uh, in this sport, in this league right now for the Vancouver Canucks and it starts tomorrow when they play Toronto and look we can dive into that matchup specifically maybe throughout the course of the show I know the team practiced today as well you were there Drancer so we'll we'll get into that as well but I do want to just look a little bit beyond just you know tomorrow's game but even the game against Boston on Sunday and look Back-to-back games against two very, very tough teams. I know Toronto has not necessarily looked like the world-beating regular season team. We've become accustomed to them being to start the year, but I think their struggles have maybe been a little bit overrated as well. Boston, you don't need to tell me, looks like the class of the league right now. Look, the team talked about how important this road trip is. They need results this weekend. you got to find a way to get at least one point to keep the possibility of a 500 road trip in play. You need two points this weekend to preserve the chance to do better than that. But the thing that really fascinates me is 
You know, the Canucks have played a lot of middling or bad teams to start the season. Not exclusively, right? They've played New Jersey. They've played Carolina. But they've also played, we just saw, Montreal, Ottawa. You go back to the first road trip. Columbus and Philly. Anaheim has been mixed in there. Nashville's struggling right now. That's going to change. That changes in a big, big way over the next two weeks. And I think if you look at their the ske- the chunk of the schedule that starts this weekend with Toronto and Boston, we are going to learn an awful lot about this team because it goes Toronto, Boston, Buffalo, L.A., Vegas, Colorado, Vegas over the next two weeks starting tomorrow. Five of those games on the road. And I know you have made the point, Trance, that look, as much as as frustrating as this team's start to the season has been, the playoffs are nowhere near done and dusted, right? There's still a very live chance to make the playoffs for this team. But you look at that stretch. To be 500, 500 after that stretch, and that'll take you to about a quarter of the season, right? 21 games. You need to find a way to pick up 10 points in seven games. 10 points in those next seven games. And that's just to get to, to 500, right? which would still leave you well behind an actual playoff pace. And look, you can play like the Canucks did against Ottawa and Montreal, and you can come away with a split. You know, you can come away with two out of four points on the road, which, hey, that's not that bad. Most teams will take that. But Ottawa and Montreal aren't very good. (laughs) And if that's what your form looks like repeatedly and consistently over the next couple of weeks, the results could get very, very ugly. And we could be at a point where a quarter of the way through the season – we're talking about the playoffs essentially being out of reach for this team. The strength of schedule, like most of the strength of schedule metrics that you can look at, um, you know, show that the Canucks have one of the most difficult schedules remaining among teams in the Pacific. There's still so many games that the margins aren't significant, but you're right. Vancouver's, you know, eaten a lot of cupcakes in the first 14 games and they haven't made hay, right? They haven't exactly made a meal out of, that dessert, <laughs> that, the dessert competition. And so, yeah, you're right. It, this is now a really tough three and four, right? Mm-hmm. Starting tomorrow, they have a really tough three and four against a Buffalo team that already ate them for lunch, a Boston Bruins team that is the destroyer of worlds at the moment, right? right? I mean, I think they've outscored their opponents now by almost 20 goals in eight games on home ice after after demolishing the Calgary Flames last night. They have McAvoy back, so they're arguably even more imposing today than they have been in amassing their what are they, 13 and 2 record? 12 and 2. So yeah. 12 and 2. So that's a really tough one, especially on the second leg of a back to back. And and this Toronto Maple Leafs team, you know, I don't sort of rate them as the elite team they've been in the past, but they're not far off. They're still going to be in the playoff mix. They're still going to be a hundred plus point team for sure. And, and they haven't even gotten the best performances yet out of their best players, right? At some point, Austin Matthews is going to be the best player in the world for a month and a half. He hasn't been at that level yet. He's going to be. It's a matter of time. Uh, Vancouver, though, hasn't had their best performance from their best player in Thatcher Demko. And I do think that's going to change. Like, I do think Demko is going to come on and that'll help for Vancouver. I still see this team as one that's going to win what 35 games Mm -hmm. at least probably more right I still see them as being a mid 80s points total team at minimum unless they do some work to get worse so you know it's grim they're about to enter this tough stretch they played really poorly this week both of those games were really poor performances you can get a sense like it was a pretty light 
practice today. It felt like a pretty good atmosphere around the club, just as an outside observer. Uh, hard battle drills, a pretty engaged group, lots of lots of people, lots of players in pretty good moods post-game, considering how the last two games have gone, or post-practice, excuse me. Everyone was happy to chat. Like, there was a lot of accountability. There's a sense that, you know, there's a sense that they need to have a short memory here, right? But that... You know, everyone knows they haven't played well. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone knows they haven't played well. There's a lot of self-criticism and probably a bit of self-doubt in that room at the moment. And yet, I didn't get... It didn't feel sour overall in, in covering this team today. It felt like everyone's just trying to remember to trust their teammates. Try not to do too much. Understand that they've been struggling, but also not let that snowball. It, like, it felt... It felt like a pretty professional atmosphere at Canucks practice and in the Canucks room following practice today, which, you know, can't be easy considering all of the sturm and drang of the past week and two really, really bad performances in Ottawa and Montreal, like really poor performances from the club. So, you know, we know they're going to have to be if you're if you play, if this team plays the way they did in Montreal and the way they did in Ottawa over the next three games, they're not going to win a game. They're not going to get a single point, right? They need to be so much better than that if they're going to hang with the ne- their next three opponents to close this road trip. Uh, luckily for them, they have two points, the, even though the form has been off. Um, you know, you, you win one, you tie one, you come home with a 50% point clip on this, on this road trip, considering the way the club finished, uh, you know, before heading out. I mean, it's not terrible. It's not season-saving, but it's not terrible. And yeah, then the then the tough hits keep coming. Then the tough yeah. opponents keep coming. <laughs> so look, there's no easy answers for this team right now. Um, they're trying new things. They definitely are trying new lines of practice. We'll see. We'll see. But I sort of look at a lot of what we're seeing from this team, and you know, I, I think everyone's trying. I think everyone's putting a brave face on it. I think this team's in trouble against superior competition. And Jake and Nanaimo Texan, what do you mean we will learn a lot? We already know everything we need to know about this team, and I completely understand that sentiment. And the, the thing that really concerns me or makes me skeptical— uh, I disagree with that. Well, I, I disagree with that. When I say I understand that sentiment, what I think Jake is saying is that he's seen enough, right? And he is, he's reached maximum level of frustration with this team. Now, I know you always have the rule of thumb, what is it, about 30 games to really get a handle— on uh, on what a team is going to be for that season, sure. But I think well, like right now, right now it looks like the Canucks are this porous defensive team that's a wagon offensively. And if only they could prevent some more goals, they'd maybe be in games. And I think they're a middling offensive team and probably a fair bit better defensively than they've looked to this point in the season. I just think they're going to be an average team, right? Like if you've learned, if you think what we've seen is representative of this team's true talent level, I disagree with you. Well, hold on. You know what we've seen in terms of results and goal scoring or what we've seen in terms of process. You know what I mean? Well, Be- because yeah, I think I the, mean, the process offensively, it's there to be seen that it hasn't been great and that it's being supported by the uh, the power play smoke results. And and mirrors. Some, yeah, and some shooting percentage. But, I mean, we've, we've been talking about it since the first few games of the season, right? Hey, wait a second. Why can't this team generate more five-on-five scoring chances? Why can't this team string good, impressive shifts together? Why can't they, you know, get the puck to the dangerous zones uh, against some fairly middling competition? So I think that has – like. I think that issue 
all you have to do is look beyond the goal score to see that that is there front and center right now with this team, right? For sure. You're right. And I'm just saying, I think this is an average team, right? And, sure. and I don't mean average like 16th. I mean like, you know, so maybe, maybe, maybe slightly below average, but roughly average, right? I think they're going to be something like the 22nd or the 16th best team in the league. And so, you know, they haven't looked like that. They've looked a lot worse than that. So, I, I mean, I... Yeah. My point is is I think this team is better than they've shown by a lot, by a fair bit. I actually think they're probably closer to playing better than we think. I just don't think it matters. Right? I, I so I, I guess I guess that's where I'm quibbling with it. I think, I think what you have said, a lot to learn about yeah. this team. But I think the thing for me is when I look at so you know, you're talking about the atmosphere practice and that's great that there's still some, you know, sense of professionalism and, and a little bit of lightness despite all of the toughness. And the thing is, look, hey, if you're looking for some silver linings going into tomorrow's game against Toronto, I mean, you could point to Toronto generally not being as impressive as they have in past seasons. The Canucks have had a couple days off, you know, not a big travel, uh, big travel leg from Montreal to Toronto. Toronto plays tonight, right? So they'll be on the second half of back to back, albeit at home. So you can find some silver linings. And look, would it shock me? If the Canucks find a way to win in Toronto tomorrow, tomorrow, no. It absolutely would not shock me. And that's because there is enough talent on this team, as you said, to at least be kind of average. And, yeah, average teams beat better teams than them all the time in the NHL. But the thing that really strikes me, and, again, I laid out you know, what they have to do over the next seven games against really tough opponents just to get to 500 on the season. And being 500 a quarter of the way through the season is generally not a good thing for your playoff chances. But they still have to go 10 points in seven games. And I, I think back to, you know, okay, the the Seattle, the back-to-back wins against Seattle and Pittsburgh, right? And it's, okay, can this be a launching pad to turning the season around, to stringing some consistent results together, to stringing some consistent performances together? No, it's not. And we're back less than two weeks later, Jim Rutherford calling out the team, calling out the coach on our radio station. And then you and I had the discussion. Okay, well, what's the te- what's the team's response to this going to be? And we both said, look, they'll, they'll come out strong against Ottawa, right? Like anytime a team is called to the carpet like that, there's going to be a response. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. They, they had two really poor performances against Ottawa and Montreal despite getting those two points. So the thing is, even if they do get the win in Toronto tomorrow – you know, we're well past the point where, like, one good performance, one even one really impressive performance, like, you know, if they controlled play and did all those things and won the scoring chance battle, won the neutral zone against Toronto, how much can you really buy into that? Because it's been constantly failing to capitalize on opportunities to turn the season around, right? And it's not just a this year thing. That's a going back over the last couple of seasons as well. So, for me, it's not so much, hey, can they win in Toronto tomorrow? Can they can they find a way to get two points over this weekend against Toronto uh, and Boston? It's can they ever get to a point where they're doing it consistently, where they're doing it over two weeks against really good teams, where they're at least keeping their head above water in that stretch? And I think what Jake is getting at when he says, you know, we already know everything we know about this team is I'm just finding it very, very difficult to – convince myself that that's possible because we've seen it over and over and over again where there's a step in the right direction immediately followed by a step back after that so i just think i mean here's another text that says wrong drancer do you think all of a sudden they're going to go on a crazy winning streak and make the playoffs even if they do they'll get bounced they need to blow it up it's time 
And my point more than anything is, you know, what I've seen from the Canucks hasn't changed my mind about thinking that they need more dramatic action. Like, I thought that mm. before they played a single game this season. Do I think they're going to get on a winning streak? Yeah. At some point, look at Philadelphia. Look at how Philadelphia started the season. You don't think the Canucks are going to play 800 hockey over a matter of two, three weeks at some point this season? Of course they are. They have Thatcher Demko. He's going to figure it out. It's going to be a mirage when it happens. But yeah, do I think the Canucks will reel off eight and ten wins at some point and have the story change dramatically in this marketplace about what this team is and what they can do? I do. I do. I don't think they're as bad as Anaheim and San Jose. You know, I don't think they're as bad as St. Louis has looked, right? I don't <laughs> think St. Louis is as bad as no, St. Louis has yeah, looked. Exactly. But like, do you really think the Canucks are going to finish behind Chicago in the Arizona? standings? Or no. Montreal? No. Or, you know, or um, or Columbus without Zach Wierenski now? Like, no, they're not. Those aren't – that's not their colleagues. That's not their comparable teams, right? They're not going to finish 19 points behind Winnipeg, right? <laughs> like, it's, it's – I don't think that's happening. I really don't. I think they're going to be, you know, in the mix. Like, to get to 85 points at this point with a point percentage sub 40% at this point requires them to play at like a 93-point pace, 95-point pace over the balance of the season. I think they're going to do that for sure. Like, I think they're going to win 31 more games. That's almost 50% of what remains. So, you know, they're going to look better. They really are. They're going to look better. And yet, that's not good enough. Mm. That's the point I'm trying to make. Like, there's going to be a dead cat bounce here. The, the key is, is to bottle your frustration and know what you know about this team and keep that in your mind's eye when their luck turns. Don't be satisfied with the mediocrity of a midseason run that makes things look an awful lot better than they are. Don't fall into the same trap that fans fell into last season. Right? It's so crucial to keep the objective view of what this team is, the objective view of their quality relative to the rest of the league, the distance they are away from being a me meaningful contender. Like, we, we don't know everything about this team yet. I think they're a lot better than they've shown. I don't think they're good enough, and I don't think there's a straightforward path to improve them to be good enough in the next two or three years. Like, I think all of that. I'm just saying it's important to know that what we've seen isn't representative of, of what they are, in my view, right? The Canucks could have six more points, be in a playoff spot at the moment. I'd still be singing the same tune with, with a lot more people disagreeing with me. <laughs> don't, don't let this run of poor form and results confuse you from what this team really is. And what this team really is is still a lot better than what they've shown through 14 games. I think the thing is... And Jake and Nanaimo texts back in as well. Is that I yes, think almost, Jake and Nanaimo. I think he's Let's almost go. agreeing with you in a way, Drancer, right? Which is in a way saying, like what you're saying is even if they go on a winning streak, we still kind of fundamentally, to borrow one of your words, know what this team is, right? And Jake and Nanaimo yeah. texts in, Drancer, I grew up in North Van, shout out to North Van. I've been a fan my whole life. I'm sick of regurgitating the same old, we're going to be a contender, we're going to try to make the playoffs. Just stop already, it's clear, it's time for a rebuild. And I think that is, 
you know, you and I talked about this earlier in the week too, where the willingness from that we see from fans and our listeners to kind of buy into these momentary blips of performance is rapidly, rapidly dwindling and has might maybe in fact has been exhausted already. So I think what you're saying, right, which is that look, if and when this team does go on a hot streak, don't change your mind all of a sudden, right? Don't have this do this rapid 180 from what you think about them right now. And I think what Jake is saying is he kind of agrees with you. Like, even if they do do that, okay, great. So they're going to make – they're going to be the seventh or eighth seed in the playoffs, like an absolute best-case scenario. I think what we're seeing is an unwillingness to kind of root for that anymore, really take hold in this market. And somebody texted, I was going to say, Jake and Drance are saying the same thing. <laughs> I like this one from Keith the Water Guy. Drance is waiting to see if they're hot garbage or warm garbage. <laughs> Uh, that's super fair. And then someone else texts in unsigned. Drancer blowing up the team will not guarantee a successful rebuild. Stop pushing total rebuild. I won't. I think that's what they need. I don't think there's a route toward setting this team on the right path or the path to being a durable contender by, you know, rearranging deck chairs. You're still sinking, you know, uh, and I'll, I'll say, think about, think about this. Think about this. At this point, are you prepared to consider Jack Rathbone like a really high-end organizational prospect? I'm or is not, he just a guy? I'm not. Like a high-end? You know, yeah, like a high-end. I end. still think there's – I'm not going to say write him off completely or anything like that, but his status has obviously diminished. So what else do they have? Because Hoaglander, this is the last year that he's cheap and cost-controlled. He'll be on a second contract next year. Pod Colson, you have this year and next. When's the next time this team's going to have a impact guy on an entry-level deal? Maybe two years with Lekaramaki, right? Depending on what happens in the lottery this year. <laughs> that's that's it. I mean, I mean, he better start playing an awful lot better. Yeah. Because he hasn't pl- been playing very well. Yeah. Right? So, like, there's no, there's no saving grace coming. There's no prospect we're just waiting for. There's... There's no route that doesn't involve massive change and honestly significant medium-term pain. Not short-term pain. Don't pretend that this is going to be that easy. It's not. It's not. There's not enough here. There's not enough here on the NHL roster. There's not enough in the trade war chest. There's not enough draft picks owned by the club. There's not enough prospects. There's nothing. Like It's going to be painful. It's really important, too, I think, for us to understand that. Just because other teams can screw up their rebuilds doesn't mean you like. I don't understand. Like, what's the people are like? Well, you can't rebuild. It's not guaranteed. Well, here's the well, thing. The okay. only thing. The only thing guaranteed is that this team's not good enough. Well, look, there is no. The, the texture is absolutely right that they're guaranteeing. There's no way to guarantee a successful rebuild. But guess what? There's no way to guarantee a successful any path of team building. If there was a way to guarantee ultimate success and win a Stanley Cup, everyone would just do that one thing. Winning yeah, a Stanley Cup the is really, really difficult, right? And so maybe it's, you know, you go from a 1% chance of winning the Stanley Cup to a 5% chance of winning the Stanley Cup or whatever. I'm just pulling those numbers off the top of my head, but you know what I mean? Yeah, it's still a long shot. It's still really tough. A lot of things have to go right for you. But that doesn't mean it's not the right course of action. And I, I don't know why when you talk about a rebuild, it's, well, yeah, but there's no guarantee that will work. Well, 
There's certainly no guarantee the current path is going to work at either. There's no guarantee that any path is going to work. So as you said, you got to lean into the probabilities. You still have to give yourself the best shot. But if the standard you're expecting is certainty, right, certainty that this is going to lead to a Stanley Cup, uh, that just does not exist well, in the NHL. No, but there's certainty on the other side. There's certainty that this path will not lead to a Stanley Cup. So don't like embrace the ambiguity, embrace the uncertainty of a different path, because the only thing we know for sure is that it can't be more joyless than this, surely. You would think so. You would certainly, certainly think so. Uh, Shayna Goldman from The Athletic, also the Too Many Men podcast, is going to join us. One of the best in the biz. We'll talk about the Canucks. I want to ask her a little bit uh, about rebuilds in general and also uh, some of the other surprise performances in the Pacific Division. Shayna joins us next. Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650 Friday edition of the show. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance with you. I'm live from the Kintech studio. Drancer is on the road in Toronto where, of course, the Canucks will play the Leafs tomorrow night. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at Dunbar Lumber. Dot com. Lots of great questions coming in. Shana Goldman from The Athletic and also the Too Many Men podcast is going to join us here momentarily. Uh, Lucas texted in in that first segment, Drancer. The problem is not that the Canucks are a middle-of-the-standings team. The problem is that they are a middle-of-the-standings team again for like the fifth or sixth year in a row. No draft pick chase, no pl- playoff chase. It's terrible. That's from Lucas. And Ken in North Van says, it's not good enough. Some major some major changes need to be made. Not a complete teardown, but someone from the core, etc. We need to start looking two years down the road again, but actually make significant changes during this time. That is from Ken in North Van. We'll get back to more of your texts uh, throughout the course of the show, but as mentioned, now joining us, she covers the NHL for The Athletic. You can also hear her on the Too Many Men podcast. She is Shayna Goldman. Shayna, thanks very much for doing this. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So when you uh, when you watch the Canucks or, or dig into kind of the stats around the Canucks, I mean, we could, we, we could run through a, a litany of problems with the team's performance right now, but what's the thing that jumps out as, as most problematic to you uh, with the Canucks at the moment? I mean, when you look at the numbers, I feel like based on their record, maybe you would expect them to be a little bit more disastrous. Like, you would expect them to be a bottom team and expected goals against or in shots against. And it's not that they rank well. I know in expected goals against, I think they're bottom 10 team shots against their, you know, a bottom 15, uh, bottom half team at five on five. It's not even that. It's it's something like you have to just watch them play and watch them collapse and watch them spiral out of control when they make mistakes. And that's what jumps out. I, it's it's amazing how they just bend every time something goes wrong and how quickly things get out of control. It's kind of remarkable as well because, you know, this is not a a particularly young team. There are young players, but you've also got plenty of veterans, you know, Bo Horvat, JT Miller, guys in key positions who've been around for a long time, and yet so frequently it is those veteran players, whether it's JT Miller or Tanner Pearson in Montreal, Oliver Ekman-Larsen, Tyler Myers, it's, it's the guys who have been around who seemingly don't have the composure and, as you said, tend to break when things start to go wrong, Shanna. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like that's something you would expect, like a rookie mistake or a young player making a mistake, and it's not. And it's a bit more – it's like a habit breaker they need now. They need 
to change their mental mindset. They need to adjust the way they're playing. And, and I think for veterans, that could be tougher in some instances. And, like, you know, a player like JT Miller, he's not expected to be some defensive stalwart. He, he never was. But, you know, you do need a player to work on their structure a little bit more if, especially in crucial situations of a game, even if it's all, you know, all game you're playing loose and you know there's five minutes left on the clock, but we're up by a minute. We have to, you know, tighten up. We have to change our way of thinking. It's like the Tampa Bay Lightning are a good example of this. It was like no, you know, D-to-D passing back in your own zone, no lateral passing back in your own zone if you were up by a goal for it with 10 minutes to go in the game. You know, you have to find ways to be risk-averse, and they're just not. Shayna, one thing that's been interesting about the Canucks profile, superficially it looks like they're, you know, high-octane offense, can't defend to save their lives. Is that who they are or who they will be anyway once we have a large enough sample that we are talking about what they are true talent-wise? That's a good question. Um, It's tough. I think that they're going to be a team that I don't see with this defense that they're ever going to be some elite defensive team. And I think you can get away with that if you have components elsewhere. And we know that they can have high-end goaltending. They just don't right now. And that's something, like, I would expect to bounce back because we know Thatcher Demko's true skill set. And I think they do have the potential to be a good offensive team, but it just feels like something's got to change somewhere. Like, they have to be harder to play against. They have to be more dominant in their puck possession game too. You know, they needed that. It's not just all offense and the rest that falls back, falls back. And then they find themselves chasing. Like they needed that. There's a team that's more in control. And I think that's, what's missing. They don't look like they're a team that's in control. No, they, they don't. Uh, overall, are you surprised by how anemic their five on five form has looked through 14 games? A little bit. Um, you know, the Canucks are a really weird team because when you look at them in the offseason, you know, and you're looking at the rest of the league, who improved, who did what, like there were gaps there that, you know, it looked like let's see how this shakes out and then adjust accordingly. And it's been like so much worse than you could have possibly imagined. So now it's not adjust accordingly. It's figure out every single problem and fix it because, you know, the sky is falling. Um, but it's, it's surprising to like to the degree that, they are as flat at five on five as they are. Like they should be a better team, but it's failures everywhere. Well, and I think a, a big part of the the kind of logic of building the team the way they did in the summer was okay. We're going to have three really good centers: J.T. Miller, Elias Pettersson, and Bo Horvat. And then we're going to have we're going to be able to have three really good lines. But you know, J.T. Miller, especially when he's been playing center, has not been able to find uh, the form that he had last season. And actually. You know, the best uh, results he's had is when he's been playing on the wing with Bo Horvat. And we're kind of having this debate now in the city of, of do you spread your talent over three lines or do you really try to load up and have two impressive lines and move JT Miller uh, back to the wing? And just, you know, not focusing necessarily specifically on the Canucks uh, situation there, but just in general, from a philosophical standpoint, Shana, how do you come down on that, on the idea of loading up your best players and really stacking your top two lines versus trying to spread it out a little more evenly around your lineup? I prefer to spread out talent, but I do think there's something to adjusting in the third period when you know you need your best players to be your best players. So if you're the Florida Panthers, that's throwing Matthew Kachuk on the top line. I know he's there right now, with Barkoff and Verhage, but I don't think that's a long-term solution because I think you start seeing the gaps below that in the lineup. 
But say they're trailing in a game, absolutely load that top line. It's the same thing. You know, we saw this for a while in New York. The Rangers kept Zibanejad and Panarin apart, rightfully so, at 5-on-5. Five five, so they weren't too top-heavy. And in the third period, they knew the two of them were playing together if they needed to. You know, those are, those are the adjustments I think you make. For Vancouver specifically, it's really tough because JT Miller, whether he should be center or wing, has been a question throughout his career. And we can go back to his time in New York. And there are a lot of comparisons between Kevin Hayes and JT Miller because one was better at center than the other, and the Rangers needed at center. Part of the issue was the Rangers didn't give Miller much time at center, and if he struggled at all, they immediately changed him out of that position. But it's interesting to see this conversation coming back up because it has been a theme you know, throughout his career. If you're going to be the center, there's a lot more pressure on you to be the play driver, and there's a lot more defensive pressures, which he's clearly not dealing with. But you know, for the Canucks, it might help to have the talent spread out but in the interim until they can figure it out until they can get their confidence back on track because that clearly is missing it's not the worst idea to stack up the lines get some results and then you spread it back out and that's what I think the Florida Panthers tried to do when they put Kachuk on the top line because I don't see that as a long-term solution I see that as a temporary to kind of get themselves rolling and then figure it out from there the other big debate that's uh, that's going on right now amongst fans and on our shows and other shows is the idea of uh, a rebuild for the Canucks. And, you know, again, one of the things uh, that comes up is we'll, we'll get texts from our listeners saying, you know, I don't want to see this team be bad for another five years. And even we've heard from Jim Rutherford along those same lines, right? Like, I, I'm not sure about a rebuild because that's potentially a long time to be bad. But, you know, I, when I hear the five-year kind of timeline around a rebuild – I don't necessarily think that it has to take that long to turn around a team, even a team that has, you know, cap issues like the Canucks and not a great prospect pool and all of those things. In your mind, Shana, if a team is going about it the right way, how long should a rebuild really take in the NHL these days? If you're going for a tear down rebuild, you have to give it the time and patience it needs. When you look at the Tampa Bay Lightning when they rebuilt, you know, in the late 2000s or the Chicago Blackhawks or the LA Kings or the Pittsburgh Penguins. You have to tear it down. You have to be patient. And you could see how the teams made mistakes by trying to speed it up. You look at the Buffalo Sabres with big contracts players like Matt Molson and Ocposo, the contracts that should have been to your difference makers, they weren't at that point for those types of players, and they shouldn't have been paying those players those contracts. And you could see how it burned them. The Canucks are in, honestly – maybe the worst position of any team in the league, because I don't think there's like an easy solution either way. If you ride this out for them and you say, we're just going to roll with this core and see what can happen. And it doesn't work. You're back even further. If you decide to tear it down, there's, you know, impatience and rightfully so. And it feels like it's a decision that should have come sooner. Now that the Miller contract was just handed out, had they, played this a little bit differently. They could have been one of the teams to, I I would call it retooling on the fly more than actually rebuilding where you look at say the St. Louis blues, uh, you know, the year before they won, they traded Paul Stasny at the deadline because they went, we're not very good. We're not going to get past the middle. Let's get some assets. And then we can use those assets to, you know, for further flipping in the off season, see how it could shake out. Had they made a big move, say trading Miller or maybe trading Horvat, um, and just brought back as many assets as they could, I think that could have kick-started it and just sped up the process. So it would have helped in the long run. It might have hurt in the short term, but it wouldn't have been that full five, six-year process if you can be that aggressive from the start. And that's, you know, it'll be interesting to see if teams start taking that path. You know, maybe the Sharks, they did it with Hurdle. What did they do with Timo Meyer? Like, they're going to be in a similar position too. Do you make one really bold move and hope that's enough to kick-start this? And, you know make it happen much quicker than it would if you're selling mid-tier pieces 
you know, every couple deadlines. Shana, to come back to the JT Miller at center thing, you know, what's been pretty interesting to watch is it does seem like his defensive results are really good on the wing, right? Like on the wing, he's a really good defensive player at center. I think the jury's out is probably the tactful way of putting it. <laughs> I saw Steve Dangle put it far more harshly this week. Um, how do you think about a player's responsibilities at wing versus center and, and how that might sort of impact their two-way value? That's a good question. Um, you know what? For Miller specifically, it's tricky because this is not a one-time conversation. This is a conversation that spreads literally his entire career. Can he handle the defensive you know, responsibilities of playing center. And if you know a player can't, you have to find a way to support them. And you can look around the league and see there are some instances where the center doesn't have to be the defensive force on that line. It can be the winger. I think um, New York buys here, but, you know, a player like Jesper Foss was that for the Artemi Panarin and Ryan Strom line, even though Strom was the center for it. Or you could look at Vegas and go, well, they don't need the highest end center or the perfect defensive center because they have Mark Stone on the wing. Like, you can make up for it elsewhere. So if the Canucks had someone who is defensive enough to carry that role for JT Miller without holding him back, and that's the hardest part of it, like adding a defensive player who's not going to be a weight, who, who can actually keep up and complement high-end players, um, you know, maybe – the decision to keep him at center would be a little bit easier. But if he really is struggling, and this is the problem that the Canucks have, you know, it would help if they had other players they could easily say, it's fine, we can ship them to center. It's okay, we have the line of versatility, and it would be just fine. But, like, if you do that, you're having the conversation of you don't have as much depth to go lower. So it's it's really intriguing to see just how much his game changes based on the position I don't know if there's skills work to be done. I don't know if it's a systematic adjustment that has to be done for that. But it just feels like right now they just need to find a way that he can play to the strengths that he has and they can cover up whatever lapses he has elsewhere. Shana, for a team like Vancouver, you know, you, you were talking about their situation being maybe one of the worst in the league, if not the outright worst in the league. Why do you think organizations get to a place where they're afraid to change things up, even when they've had as little success as the Vancouver Canucks. You know, it's one thing to be like, well, it's hard to rebuild. This team's been in the playoffs seven straight years and, you know, maybe made it to the cup final once or something like that. I mean, this team's made the playoffs once in seven years. How do you rationally square like what, why there'd be this sort of organizational entropy, this refusal to try something different when uh, surely you can't be all out of ideas yet. <laughs> yeah, it feels like the word rebuild is such like a terrifying word in hockey because no one wants to rock the boat and say, we're going to be terrible for a couple of years and you have to sit through it. And I get it, you know, some fan bases, it's not as easy as of a sell. But when you have a fan base like the Canucks, the Canadians, the Maple Leafs, the Rangers, the Bruins, the Red Wings, you have such an established fan base that you should be able to confidently say it and say, this will work out in the long run and hope the fans stick along. You have a big enough fan base that you should be fine. You're not worried about not selling out 10,000 seats or something like that. Like it's, I think that the Canucks are in a better position because of that. And I think fans, especially around the league, when they see rebuild working, and you could see by the Lightning's championship runs, you could see by the Avalanche, you could see by the Blackhawks, the Kings, that rebuilds can work if they're done correctly. And fans 
you know, it's a different experience, but you get to know young players and you get to be there from the grassroots up. And there's something exciting about it. Yet managers are so quick to, you know, say, no, we don't want to rock the boat. And then the last couple of years really made it more challenging because now you're taking away the possibility of the playoffs. Even if your, you know, starting possibility like the Canucks is, is so low of the playoffs, you're taking away revenues that they didn't get to have because they didn't have fans in the stands. And, you know, for a lot of teams the last couple of years, even if they looked completely mid and like they had no shot at all of doing anything in the playoffs, getting that one round of revenue from reaching the playoffs was a game breaker for ownership. So it doesn't matter. So it would be nice now that things are stabilizing to see teams go, okay, we need to actually do what's best for the team. We need to be bold. We need to take the dive and we need to go for it and commit to it. And that's the biggest thing. If you start it, you have to finish it and you can't try to speed it up. So it needs to be a buy-in from top to bottom. And that might be tricky to get, but it would be nice if we saw teams be bolder with it when they need to tear it down or better yet know when to step back even if they're destined for the playoffs and go we're not going to do any damage here we just need to be smart and prepare for you know two or three really long cup runs if we just miss out on this one um and i just i think we need to see teams succeed in doing that for others to take the leap and follow because it's a copycat league in conversation with Shana Goldman of The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Shana, I want to ask you about some of the other interesting situations in the Pacific Division, uh, starting with the Seattle Kraken, winners of five in a row, much lower expectations, obviously, coming into year two for Seattle. Are the Kraken for real right now? The Kraken are for real, and they're fun. Uh, look, I don't think this team's going to make the playoffs. I feel like the Kraken, if I had to guess right now, and this is partially based on what I know about the team by the numbers and partially based on vibes, that the Kraken are going to be that team that just misses the playoffs. But I think that's progress for them if they can play disruptor in the Western Conference, and that's what it feels like they're doing. You know, obviously relying on Martin Jones as your starter, I don't care how well he's playing. I don't care if he played well for 40 games. I would still look at it and have, like, anxiety if he were my goaltender and say I don't see how this is going to last (laughs) but they're making it work and even though the defense isn't as strong as it was last year and a lot of it's because of you know changes in personnel last year they so many players moved out um they have goal support it's it's exactly what they're missing and they have contributors from all over their lineup they're showing what happens if you spread you know your talent out if you have Yanni Gord on your third line and he's playing an excellent shutdown game and you have players like Matty Beniers and or Everly on, you know, in one combination. You have Bjorkstrand and Burakovsky as new additions. There's a lot of potential there. And obviously there's a lot to work out. Shane Wright's usage is one of them. The goaltending is another still. And there's work to be done back in their own end. But they're making it work by having contributions from all over the lineup. And they have the assets. If they really wanted to make a splash, they could. So I'm intrigued to see where they go from here. Even if they miss the playoffs this year, if they can keep building from here, and they built a lot from year to year already, I'm interested to see where they're heading. And on the flip side in the Pacific Division, Calgary, major expectations after the offseason, losers of seven in a row. How vulnerable are the Flames? Yeah, talk about a big surprise there. It felt like, you know, hope was lost for Calgary, and then they made a couple more changes, and all of a sudden it was a completely new-look team. The problem with Calgary is they have this window to contend, and it really is like the next three years based on the ages of the players that they have that they just brought in, like Kadri and Uyghur and Huberto, when everyone's expected to be in their primes before they start steeply declining. So this start, you know, I think it's a pressure point for them. Um, It sometimes looks like they are not cohesive, you know, and maybe it's the fact that they played so many games at home and they weren't, you know, facing different matchups and they didn't get time to bond on the road. And now they're starting to get that. Maybe that will turn things around for them. 
but it just doesn't look like you have this cohesive five-man unit on the ice at all times. And, you know, there's so much skill to go around, but it's just not working. So it's interesting because they have the structure. You know, we know Daryl Sutter's defensive structure, how how well it's worked for them before. But I'm really interested to see how they try to turn this around because they have the pieces in place, but it's just, it's like, it's just not working. And it's not as simple as saying, you know, they're creating one of the highest rates of chances. They're just not converting. And once their shooting percentage turns around, like there are some actual issues below the surface too. So this is, this is going to be a really interesting next stretch for them. Shana, just before we let you go, uh, the big news probably around the NHL today was the announcement from the league and the PA that they were trying to hold the World Cup of Hockey in 2024. They're not going to be able to do it. They're going to try again uh, in 2025. You know, I just look at it. There's so much incredible young talent in the league, and they have not really had a legitimate chance to represent their countries in a true best-on-best tournament. It's so frustrating for me as a hockey, as a massive hockey fan yourself. What's your reaction to the announcement today? It's disappointing. It's not entirely surprising, and I understand some of the challenges with it. Like, look, you're trying to put on a tournament mid-season where I think I read that the games were going to be half in Europe, half in North America, and you have, you know, the issues with Russia and all that. Like, it's a complicated yeah. situation. But it it wouldn't be as big of a blow that they're not playing in the World Cup of Hockey if they simply played in the Olympics. And it's funny because even the last Olympic cycle, if you said it's fine that they didn't play considering the environment, the world, the risk, the everything. And I think it's the most understandable Olympics to miss. It would have been fine if they just went to the one previously, we wouldn't be having this conversation, but they chose not to because it came down to money that now every decision since is just, it, it looks that much worse for them and rightfully so. So hopefully they can figure out a way to make this tournament happen and allow it to be the fun tournament. The world cup of hockey is meant to be the Olympics are one thing. It's much more serious. And I'm not saying the World Cup of Hockey isn't serious. Anytime you can represent your country, it is. But it's a tournament I think that last time around allowed for a lot more fun with things like Team North America and Team Europe and the way the groups were uniting and really disrupting the entire tournament. So ideally, they figure out a way to make it happen so players can represent their countries and fans can have a fun experience out of it. But it's it's going to be it's, – it's just complicated to put it all together. So I'm hoping they figure it out. But at the same time, they need to figure out – how to make the Olympics work as well, because when there are problems, now look at the backlash they're going to face. Shana, always really appreciate it. Fantastic, uh, fantastic stuff. Have a great weekend, and hopefully again we can talk again soon. Thanks for having me. That is Shana Goldman covering the NHL at The Athletic and also part of the Too Many Men podcast. Always bring in the heat, Drancer, and uh, some very incisive commentary on the state of the Vancouver Canucks from Shana. The worst situation in the league. Yeah, that's the pull quote. That's the pull quote right there. <laughs> that's it. Pure fire. I mean, I, I just, it's so important, I think, that we hear this from people outside of our market. And specifically from people that aren't me. <laughs> but, but, I mean, truly, I just, it feels and looks, and you talk to people around the league, and, and it's just like, man, like, there's, is there a path forward here at all? Is there a path forward here at all? You know, for me, for a while, it's been no. The answer's been no. I, I, I think they need to get really serious and aggressive in, in charting a bold new path. Well, let's get into that next segment. 
Dalvir texted in, uh, if anyone doesn't want the Canucks to go through a rebuild because it'll be painful, I have one question. Are you not in pain now? <laughs> is this fun for you? Let's make the pain purposeful. Seriously. That's from Dalvir, which is uh, the phrase. Get on. Nailed it. <laughs> the phrase, are you not in pain now? It sounds like something out of a Greek tragedy. <laughs> it's just a fantastic turn of phrase uh, from Dalvir. Yeah, look, we're going we're gonna to be having this debate for a while. I, I, uh, I feel very safe in saying that. Uh, we'll continue to have this debate throughout the final hour of the show. Uh, we'll also talk about what the Canucks did at practice today in Toronto ahead of tomorrow's game against the Leafs. Some changes, some things stayed the same. We'll talk about that. Play some audio from the Canucks practice as well. That's coming up in the next hour. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, final hour of the week here on the program. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Drance is on the road in Toronto. I am coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews, Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And, of course, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line uh, where people are uh, continuing to weigh in on the rebate – or, sorry, rebate, rebuild. <laughs> a rebate would be great. A rebuild uh, versus not rebuild question. Uh, and we will get into that, as I mentioned, uh, over the course of the next hour. But the Canucks did practice today in Toronto ahead of their game against the Leafs tomorrow night and uh, some interesting changes some interesting not changes some interesting preserving of the status quo I guess as well Drancer you are at practice I'll run through the lines and then we can go through some of the uh, the more interesting bullet points as well we'll hear from Bruce Boudreaux in this segment too so JT Miller stays at center on the top line still playing with Brock Besser but Ilya Mikheyev moves up to the other wing on that spot of course Tanner Pearson is on IR uh, he's going to be out for the foreseeable future. Horvat, Pod Colson, and Garland remains your second line. Pedersen with Kuzmenko and Niels Hoaglander replacing Ilya Mikheyev there. Uh, and then Niels Amon, Dakota Joshua, and Jack Studnika on your fourth line. On the blue line, Hughes and Tyler Myers together. OEL and Ethan Bear. Riley Stillman draws back in, playing with Luke Shen on the third pair. Rathbone and Burroughs, uh, your extras there. So, the most interesting thing that jumps out to me, first of all, Drancer, is JT Miller remains at center. Now, Ilya Mikheyev is very, very interesting to put in that spot instead of Tanner Pearson. Obviously, a major speed boost going from Tanner Pearson to the fastest skater on the team, Ilya Mikheyev. And I think foot speed has been an issue uh, for the Miller-Besser-Pearson combination this year. And this unsigned texter... Uh, when we were talking to Shayna Goldman, wrote this in, and she mentioned, you know, look, you can get by with a center who's not an ace defensively if you have some really good defensive talent around them. And this texter said maybe that's why put Bruce put Mikheyev with JT Miller for defensive responsibility. So an interesting... It's speed. Yeah, it's speed. It's speed more than anything else. Bruce was explicit about it. I don't know if we have that part of the hit 
be and I and I wasn't recording my conversation with Bruce after I arrived late, which you'll be able to hear me make. I a did, joke and I laughed very much. Audio. I laughed very much when I heard you ask, "What I, did I miss?" In the, in the I was still chatting with Demko, and so I just showed up, and I wanted to make sure I didn't just regurgitate what Mur- what Murph, who jumped the gun and started the scrum early, which we'll forgive him for because he joined our program yesterday. Um, <laughs> um anyway. I asked Bruce specifically about Mikheyev on that top line, keeping it together, keeping Miller at center. Speed was the answer. Not defensive responsibility, speed. And I think that makes a ton of sense when you consider how that line has looked uh, to this point, right? Hoaglander then going into the spot where vacated by Mikheyev on that line with Kuzmenko and Pedersen with Bruce once again citing that Hoaglander and Pedersen mm-hmm. get along. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what else? You know what else? Hoaglander brings a lot of the forechecking uh, utility that's so key or has been so key to what Pedersen, Kuzmenko, and Mikhaev have been able to accomplish. Uh, in fact, I'd say Hoaglander's a little more dynamic as a battle winner along the wall and as a playmaker than Mikhaev is. I think that's a really good fit for Pedersen. Really interested to see what that line looks like. And then we've got Pod Coles and Garland and Horvat, and of course a little bit of a scare. Garland appeared to hurt his hand in practice, was down for a while, Always concerning, especially when it's a guy as tough as Garland. Uh, He went to the bench. He was sitting there discussing it with medical staff, taking some turns, handling the puck, making sure that he was all right. Um, You know, for a guy like Garland to spend time like that always concerns me because, you know, that's a tough guy. Like, he might not be the biggest guy, but that's a tough human being, right? You know if he is taking a sec that he's not feeling good, like that it's not great. And so, luckily... Uh, and I checked with him afterwards, no worse for wear. So I, I don't think we have to like watch his status closely or anything. At least I'm not showing up at the rink tomorrow for what I'm sure will be an optional skate with that in mind. But uh, yeah, something to watch for, I suppose, tomorrow. And then the fourth line back to being what it was mm-hmm. uh, before before the Montreal game with Joshua, Studnika, and Oman. The change on defense to me is almost more notable. Hughes Myers is a pair that we've seen a lot when the Canucks are trailing, but very rarely mm-hmm. when the Canucks need to win um, or or need to like hold a lead or preserve a lead or come out ahead well, ver- on the scoreboard very in a rarely, game state. Very rarely early in a game at all, right? Like very rarely to start the well, game or at, or at a 0-0 in the first period state. Never when you're tied, never when you're down, only when you're trailing, which says a lot about why we don't see it, right? They're both more offensive guys. They load you up from this team's perspective with sort of your most offensively minded defenders, which sort of removes some of the puck moving that you have in other parts of your lineup. But also, you know, I don't think defense, like typically speaking, coaches have, and and not without cause, put Hughes with guys who are really good in zone defenders, Mm -hmm. right? Tanev, uh, Jordy Ben, um, Luke Shen, obviously Luke Shen. So, you know, they, there's a reason we haven't seen it much and going up against a Toronto Maple Leafs top six that can do some damage. Uh, it's a big ask. Like it's a, it's a tall ask Hughes, by the way, I still am. I'm still a little concerned watching him play, watching him practice about the pop that in his stride at the moment, it just doesn't look quite right to me. And, you know, we'll see. I, I don't want to. So long as he's in the lineup, so long as he's practicing, I'm not. I'm not going to blame injury for anything. 
uh, and I definitely don't want to speculate too much, but right. considering how much time he's missed, considering that he missed games and came back and said he was feeling better, when I don't see that pop in his stride, I wonder if that gets better in season. Uh, I wonder if it's still ailing him a little bit, and you know, if it is, I don't know that there's another player that this team could have at less than 100% that would hurt them more. Right, Hughes is so crucial, considering his ability to personify in in a lot of ways, the personify and individually single handedly address what this team's biggest weakness is overall, uh, which is the ability to move the puck. Um, OEL Bear back together, I like that. Bear, I think, has played okay, a little bit uneven. Um, I think they have gotten along. Bear's been interesting because. His calling card's puck moving, and I don't think he's been very good moving the puck yet in, in Vancouver. I think it's going to take some time. That's fine. I'm not worried about it. I'm not criticizing him either. I just don't think that part of his game has necessarily been standout. And the question marks about him typically have been his defensive game, and I think that's where he's been really good. So he's almost been good but against type in his first few games with the Canucks. We'll see how that evolves. In any, way, in any event, I like putting... Ekman Larson, who I spoke with a little bit on background today, he was deeply critical of where his game's at. Hmm. Deeply critical. Like, to the point where he'd use a word to describe how he's played, and I'd be like, wow, you'd go with that? <laughs> you know, like, I wouldn't. You know, I I've been critical of you on radio and in print, but I wouldn't even say that. Um, so, you know, he's pretty down on his game, but again, when I'm talking about the professionalism the relatively light mindset like he seemed like he was in a good place in in addressing with addressing it and dealing with it and sort of trying to put it behind him and move forward but he definitely knows he hasn't been at the level that he was last season um and he was deeply critical of his performance to this point in in, in conversation with me however he was full of praise for what he's seen from bear and how that pair has played together when they've been together and and last but not least, Riley Stillman looks like he's going to get back into yeah. the lineup. Not a huge surprise considering Jack Rathbone's struggles against the Montreal Canadiens. Um, asked Bruce about it, too. Again, I think that's a clip that you're not going to see on the audio. And, you know, I think uh, reliability is the key. Like, that's what Bruce Boudreaux wants to see from him. He wants him to be reliable. I do think those two games that he struggled in a bit... Um, you know, cost him a little bit of trust. And he wa he believes, though, I think, in the player. I think he believes in his ability to move the puck and get the puck moving a bit. And one thing I'd note for Canucks fans, like, you put him with Shen. That's a more defensively sturdy partner. What have I been saying about Stillman, right? Despite how he profiles in your mind's eye as a physical stay-at-home guy, he's kind of more hybrid than that. He kind of needs a more sturdy defensive partner alongside him. I think that could work pretty well. Um, but of course, I've had a lot more patience for Stillman than a lot of fans in this market. I don't expect this argument to go over well, but, but I am curious to see how it looks. I think that's a pair calibrated far, far more favorably for Stillman than, um, than a Myers-Stillman pair was. And we'll see what it looks like when Stillman gets back into the lineup against Toronto. Lastly, Bruce declined to name a starter for tomorrow, but I do... Just a gut feel. This is a gut feel. I think it's going to be Martin tomorrow. I really do. I uh, really think it's going to be Martin tomorrow. I don't want to. I don't want to understate the kind of implications of not starting your number one goalie in that game tomorrow. But it's kind of an easy decision for me to go with Spencer Martin, right? And I know you brought this up a while back on the show when we were kind of looking ahead to this road trip, right? Which is that you know Spencer Martin's an Ontario guy. 
Thatcher Demko played his college hockey in Boston, so you can kind of pitch that as like the hometown game, the more the more marquee game from Demko's perspective. So I think when you have that kind of out, so the optics aren't as bad as it normally would to not have your starter in the Hockey Night in Canada Toronto game. And then you add that to the fact that just Martin is playing better. I don't want to say he's been incredible because, you know, he's given up, what, nine goals over his last two starts. But, yeah, Demko doesn't look good. He doesn't look like himself. So, I, I don't I, – again, I don't want to – I don't want to understate. I understand it's a very tricky thing. And with goalies and, you know, starts in marquee games, that's always going to be a consideration. But it seems like a relatively straightforward choice, at least from my perspective, to run with Spencer Martin. So, the decision has been made, even though the Canucks aren't publicizing it. Mm-hmm. That much I can tell you. Okay. They know who's starting these these split games. There is no agonizing. This isn't a tough decision from their perspective either. Um, we'll find out tomorrow morning. My gut is it's Martin and then Demko. Gut feel thing, just like, you know, there's, there's some on-background conversations that inform that a bit, but that's just... That's just my gut. That's what I'm expecting tomorrow at the rink, and we'll see if I'm right. Yeah, that that would be what I would bet on as well, and I think that is the right call given given where Demko's game is at. I, I do want to talk about Thatcher Demko a little bit, but just quickly on the new defense pairings. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm just in a pessimistic mood. <laughs> I don't know why, but I just can't help looking at those three pairings that you would expect to see on the ice against Toronto. I just see a lot of downside in each of them, right? Like, we know what the downside is with Quinn Hughes and Tyler Myers, especially with Quinn Hughes not at the top of his game right now. OEL, as you said, has been very critical of his own game. We've been critical as well. I like Ethan Bear, but he's also had problems managing the puck, uh, especially in the defensive zone so far with the Canucks. I mean, he's obviously still getting back into kind of top game shape as well, and given where OEL's game is that that concerns me and then Stillman Shen I totally hear what you're saying about you know Shen being a more reliable partner but I've also had questions about the job Stillman has done defending as you said it's not so much about turning the puck over or failing to move the puck out of the zone but I think there have been major issues in zone defensively and so I can kind of understand the reasoning behind putting all of those pairs together, but I also see some significant downside with all the pairs, and that really concerns me going up against a Leafs team that, again, you know, for whatever you want to say about them, they still have Austin Matthews, <laughs> an absolute dynamite goal scorer. They still have Mitch Marner. They still have guys that can burn you, and if you are if you don't find a way to get the absolute most out of the, you know, admittedly very flawed personnel you have on the blue line, I, I worry that uh, there could be a crooked number up on the board. Uh, tomorrow in Toronto yeah although the Maple Leafs are not you know their their bottom six is not as dynamic as it has been in the past um they're more of a threat to beat you three two than they are to beat you seven two they have a, to say that they can't beat you seven two but they, they have I, a lot there they have a lot of jags as you would say just a guys in the bottom six right they're 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 way more stable it's also just a stability thing and a stylistic thing like they're a way more stable side than they are a track meet side they play a complete team game with an emphasis on puck possession but they're not run and gun track meet you know 2019 Leafs this is a different team a different type of team um yeah and they have some Jags but they also have some guys who feel like Jags but aren't like uh, Z-A-R right Mm. Zach Aston Reese seems like a Jag 
but he's no Jag. He's really good, right? David Kampf might seem like a Jag. He he's not. He's very, very good. A very good physical centerman. Uh, so, you know, guys like Yarncroft have maybe trended in that direction in terms of their overall form this season. But, I, I mean, one thing, I, one thing I'd note is for all the Leafs' issues on the bottom six, they've stumbled onto something with Mulgan, Kampf, and ZAR. And that could give Vancouver some issues. That that gives them a th- the stability of a, a third line that can at least hold its own. And the return of Timothy Lilligren can't be understated in terms of what it allows the Maple Leafs to do as a, as a team capable of moving the puck. Um, without Lilligren and Sandine, I think they're a little slow on the back end. With those guys in the lineup, they profile more like the sort of team that can give the Canucks a really long night. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see. It's obviously a very tough opponent, despite the massive issues in net, um, you know, with the chance too, considering they play tonight and Shalgren will start, that they might even be giving that uh, that Keith Petruzzi kid mm-hmm. who, who everyone saw sign his contract and get celebrated in the locker room a lovely clip. Uh, he might be making his NHL debut Saturday night for all we know, unless they go back to back Shalgren in, in any event, the, the Leafs and net. Um, that should be a big edge for Vancouver, provided that whoever Vancouver's starter is performs well. We might. Did you, did you ever watch? Uh, I don't know if you ever watched Letterman growing up, but the segment uh, "Is this anything?" Right, and they you know roll out the whatever it was, and then just comment, "Yep, that's something," or "No, that's that's nothing." And we might have to start that with like, "Is this guy a jag?" <laughs> just rapid fire. Is this guy a jag? Going through, uh, is this guy in fact just a guy, or is he something? Uh, more. This question comes in. How is Stillman back in before Kyle Burrows? As you mentioned, there's the reliability. The, the Kyle Burrows thing is baffling. Well, to me. that's the thing, though. And I don't want to make this an anti Stillman <laughs> thing because, as you said, there's a certain. No, amount, no, it's like, not. Like, it, it's. Okay, it's fine. Bruce Boudreaux can like Riley Stillman, but what? Sorry, I, I, the issue is higher up the defense core, and right? What, like and, that's the issue. And, and I just, I almost feel like I missed something with Kyle Burrows. You know what I mean? Where he was playing pretty well, he's doing Kyle Burrows stuff. Everyone likes it. He looks good out there, and then all of a sudden he's out of the lineup, and even as the team really struggles on the blue line, can't get back in. I don't get why he's warming up. They're, they have him warming up. Yes. This is a guy who's played, you know, o- almost 400 pro games. Like, why? Why is he warming up? Well, isn't the line, isn't Honestly, the line that, like, they like his positivity out in the warm-up, right? And it, I mean, I just it's just so weird. It's just so weird. Like, I, you know... I tend not to be very critical of Bruce Boudreaux because I think Bruce Boudreaux's a, a remarkable coach, but this one makes no sense to me. Absolutely no sense. I think it's, I think it's a poor way of treating a guy who's got that much pro experience. To be totally honest with you, although Kyle Burrows is so positive, you know, like I see him in the press box and stuff, and he's fine, he's happy, he's you know working on work. He's he's a team guy. He mm-hmm. knows what it's going to take for him to stick around in the NHL and it's to do whatever, right? Like at the end of the day, he spent, you know, the, the, at the same token that he's got 400 games of professional experience, he's got 350 games of experience in the AHL level yeah. at the AHL level, right? He's worn a captain C in the American league. Like he, the, you know, at the end of the day, every day that he's above the line is a very good day for Kyle Burroughs. And, you know, I think his attitude reflects that, but it doesn't make sense to me. And uh, yeah, so that along with the fact that, I mean, if JT Miller has a big giveaway early in the first period and he's not moved to the wing origi- uh, uh, immediately, I think that'll be, you know, 
cause for criticism as well for Boudreaux, but I tend to be very circumspect and careful in the criticism that I uh, make of coaches. Uh, you know, despite the fact that I don't love the Hoaglander, Pod Colson, Rathbone usage in the early going, um, you know, like I, I've tended to defend even the structure that this team plays with to this point. The Bur- I, 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 really, I haven't brought it up because I'm sure fans don't care, but the Burrows and warmups thing just baffles me. The um, the so you made the point if JT Miller has the big giveaway right and he doesn't move to the wing and. Obviously, Jim Rutherford had the quote about needing to hold the players more accountable, potentially doing something that you know, gets their attention, depending on how this road trip goes. That's at the management level. Okay, so that's one part of it. But the coach can play a role in that as well. And look, I understand that the coach might be in a bit of a difficult position here because probably the best court when – when you are called out and, and you know kind of publicly criticized like that, by the president and you're the coach, probably the best course of action is to try to get the team to rally around you. Right. And as you said, he's the kind of permanent good cop. So that's how it's going to go. But at a certain point, there does need to be some idea of accountability. Now I know Tanner Pearson was going to be in the crosshairs for that from fans before he was injured. So he's out of the lineup anyways, but even if it's not, you know, scratching JT Miller or anything like that, or scratching Oliver Ekman Larson, those, I I understand that's a pretty extreme uh, step to take, but as you said, just moving him back to the wing, dropping him down the lineup a little bit, right? Dropping somebody off power play one, letting them miss a few shifts at some point. I don't have a problem with Jack Rathbone coming out because, yeah, he didn't have a good game in Montreal. I get that he's a young player. If that's the end of him playing NHL minutes, that's a problem. But coming out for one game, I don't have a problem with. But I do think there needs to be a little bit more actual accountability for some of the veteran players higher up the lineup at some point. And again, I'm not saying, you know, we get texts and I'll send him to the AHL. No, no, no. I'm not saying that. But just <laughs> like there are there there's point there's. It's a spectrum, right? One is sending the guy to the AHL. The other end of the spectrum is just continuing to give them 20-plus minutes a game. There's lots of points in between those two uh, extremes on the spectrum, though, and I think maybe we need to explore some of those other options uh, at some point here. Niels Hoaglander's always one defensive lapse, a positional one, like not even a super loud one that leads directly to a goal, a subtle one from being out of the lineup, it feels like, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know... There's definitely some more veteran guys who are making bigger mistakes on a nightly basis with seemingly no, you know, outcome on their ice time or role of any kind. It's it's weird. Like, it's it's hard to understand. Yeah, it's uh, – and again, I get that Boudreaux's in a really tough spot here, right, because – uh, yeah, if there's that bad cop, good cop dynamic, is he does he really want to lean into all of a sudden punishing veteran, highly highly paid players on the team? I understand why that's difficult, but it's also at some point it has to start happening uh, here. Um, just before we hear from Boudreaux, now I know uh, there was some audio of your conversation or the Demko's conversation with the media. It's not really playable. We're trying to track down a better copy of it but uh instead of playing it what because i know you know i did want to just take a moment on thatcher demko because i know he didn't speak after the game in montreal that's a couple times this year where he hasn't uh spoken after the game when he's been requested to what was the the theme and what were your takeaways from hearing thatcher demko after practice today yeah look he's not happy with where his game's at him and ian clark are working on a couple of items Uh, he came into camp really prepared 
uh, really excited for this season, and, and it hasn't really gone the way he'd hoped. Um, and he hasn't struggled like this very often. You know, I, I sort of – he brought up when he first broke into the American League, he had a slow start that first season and, you know, worked through it. And I sort of brought up to him when Markstrom got hurt right before the pandemic that he struggled there too. But that – if seems like he regards that a little bit differently as well. Uh, so, you know, I thought he was pretty accountable and mature today in terms of addressing his struggles and, um, you know, explaining his positive mindset, not really worrying too much about getting in rhythm or sort of what it is, just really focused on putting his head down and doing the work, right? This is a guy who works extremely hard at his craft. He's worked extremely hard on his craft to go through this, like going through this. And I think they've identified a couple things, a couple areas where he wants to be better and clean it up. He didn't sound like someone who was down on himself for his game. He sounded like someone who was disappointed and sort of resolved to figuring it out. Yeah, and look, I did the uh, I did the postgame show on Wednesday, and somebody texted in, you know, how long you, you guys – and look, Sad has been more critical of Demko than I have been, but somebody texted in something along the lines of, you know, how long before you guys get really – seriously concerned about Thatcher Demko and if the question is about this season well I mean his play is already affecting what their final point total might be right and we'll see if it doesn't turn around quickly it's going to continue to do that so yeah if you're just talking about this season it's fair to already be be concerned with what we've seen from Thatcher Demko if you're talking beyond this season and just kind of long term you know do you have to change what you think of Thatcher Demko I'm not there yet because he's a goalie. He's going to have bad stretches. He's coming off a, a surgery in the offseason and all of that. It would have to be much, much more uh, drawn out than it currently has been for me to start questioning what I know or what I think I know about Thatcher Demko, you know, going into the, what would it be, the final three years uh, of his deal with the Vancouver Canucks beyond this one. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You can keep your thoughts coming in. Uh, let's hear from Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreau after practice today in Toronto. Battles in practice, especially at the end? It was a tough, tough practice. You know, I mean, uh, um, I, I thought they battled well. They battled hard, but I'm going to see it tomorrow. I, you know, uh, today is is fine and dandy, but let's see the compete level tomorrow. In that kind of a short ice drill, uh, Miller and Shen go out there first. Is that to set the tone just for the rest of the guys? They've done this before, and they they like going against each other. They like being physical against each other, and, and there's two big men going at it, and. Uh, uh, it, was, it was fun to see, but it, it did set the tone for the rest of the group. What about the spotlight of a Saturday night uh, in Toronto, Hall of Fame weekend? Huh. I mean, there's extra buzz more than normal? Oh, there'll be, a, there'll be a buzz, there's no doubt. And then there's a big uh, sports conference going on in town, too, and where most of those people will be there. And uh, So it's a, uh, you know, it's a special weekend for Toronto hockey, I think, and... You know, we're part of it, so I hope we're, uh, you know, we put a good show for ourselves. Thatcher was quite introspective. He was talking there about just finding the joy to come back to the rink and believing that you're going to get out of it if you put the work in. Is that kind of a message to, to him? Well, that's the kind of message to everybody. If you put the work in, you usually get something out of it. Very rarely in life, if you outwork the opposition or outwork your uh, people that you're working with, that you don't get results. And uh, so that's what the message basically is so and we'd like it to happen sooner than later 
Are you going to name your goaltender for tomorrow night, and are you going to wait till tomorrow? I'll wait till tomorrow. Wait till tomorrow. What I miss? Uh, we were just talking about the battle drills. And, oh, uh, nice. Yeah. Did you have a name for it? That that last one? Yeah. We call it the Bill Drill. The Bill Game. The Bill Game. Yeah, it's an Andy Murray game that I learned when um, I was with him in L.A. And uh, uh, he used to do it anytime he thought the team needed a little bit more physicality. Mm. And it usually worked. So Maybe keep helps keep it light a bit. Too. Yeah. Oh no, they have fun at it. I mean, it's amazing how much fun you can have uh, hitting other people uh, <laughs> when they're your friends. It's now let's do it to people that aren't our friends. Mm-hmm. With uh, with uh, Mikheyev going back up on, onto the top line, what are you hoping to see with Mikheyev joining? Well, it's more that Hoggy and uh, PD get along really well. So I mean, you're looking to to find fits all the time with with this group and I uh, but I thought McKayev with his speed might really be a help with Besser and and Miller and Hoggy and and the relationship he has with Petey might be a good good help for Petey because that speed is really going to help on the right side. That is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreau after practice today in Toronto with a, a cameo from our own Thomas Durant striding halfway through with what did I miss which is a just fantastic stuff. Uh, and also hearing some good laughs from Drance there. And, uh, you know, the overall message from Boudreau, right? Outwork. Outwork the other team. And physicality. You asked him about the drill they were doing at the end. Uh, and, you know, he explained a little bit of the backstory of it and says something you do anytime a team needs a little bit more physicality. And he says, yeah, it's fun to go out there and hit your friends on the ice. Let's see if they can do it uh, against the other team tomorrow in Toronto. And that, that did get me thinking. I don't know if there is a way uh, to bet on this, but anything, you could, if you could find somebody to give you odds on, like, Luke Shen hits, take the over. Or, like, a Luke Shen fighting major, because, you know, obviously drafted by Toronto, uh, going back to play against the Leafs, and uh, the message of physicality, the emphasis on physicality. Luke Shen, usually the guy that comes through with that for the Canucks. Feels like a pretty safe bet. He's going to try to do more of the same tomorrow against his old team, Drancer. You would expect exactly that. <laughs> I expect exactly that. Like if there's any be player, and this is pretty much the case all the time, right? Any game, but specifically that game. If there's any player who is going to come out with fire in their belly, it's it's got to be Luke Shen, you would think, going in. Yeah, well, uh, to play and, against but that's team. an... That's an every night that's thing that's for, a, for the you, Canucks with Lucien, You can Lucien, bet on that right? pretty much every day, every game with yeah. Shen. <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd like there to be a longer list, but <laughs> Shen for sure. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. Keep your text coming in, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Final segment of the show coming up. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Yeah, I was back in Sweden. Uh, I was actually in the bathroom when they called. Uh, <laughs> yeah, too much information. I know the feeling. <laughs> Welcome back to Canucks Talk. Final segment for today. <laughs> Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance with you here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, that was uh, that was Daniel Sedin and Roberto Luongo at the Hall of Fame ring ceremony today. The question to Daniel was, where were you when you got the call that you'd be going to the Hall of Fame, the Hockey Hall of Fame? And he said in the bathroom. And then uh, Roberto Luongo gets, uh, gets the quip, the quip in there, Drancer. And I didn't see the press conference live, but uh, just reading the ex- excerpts on, uh, on Twitter – 
it sounds like Luongo was in vintage, vintage Luongo forum today. Yeah, unfortunately, I missed it. It was uh, started too soon yeah. to the radio show beginning, so I wasn't able to make it from the rink there and then and then home to do this. So uh, disappointing, but I'll catch up with uh, with those gentlemen uh, later on this weekend. The, the one uh, quote that I really enjoyed from uh, Luongo was about, of course, famously, you know, anonymous on Twitter, Strombone One, and that uh, he said he was ahead of the curve and never wanting to be verified <laughs> on Twitter. He was so, he was right all along. True story. Twitter reached out to me, like old Twitter, when yes. I was the Panthers head of PR and said, we will verify the Strombone One account, even though there's no identifying, you know, anything to yes. it, right? It doesn't reveal the name. Um, it's intentionally vague, right? Like there's not, no identifying, but they offered to uh, effectively amend their rules for the purpose of verifying the Strombone One account. And I took it to Luongo and we had about a 15 minute conversation about it. Like really, really considered it at length. And then he was like, and then he was like, it's funnier if I'm not verified. And that was the, that was the final call. So oh, that's yeah, that's good. I, he, that's a really good line. And good he was, for Lou. And he was right. <laughs> he, he was right. He made the he right nailed call. It. He absolutely nailed it. He did it. indeed. Shout out to Roberto um, Luongo for yeah. that one. A, a visionary. Yes. <laughs> uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And, of course, uh, we're live at the Kintec studio. Drancer's on the road in Toronto. I'm live in the Kintec studio. Uh, before we get into the text message inbox, because uh, there's lots of questions and, and whatnot coming in, you know, earlier, I think it was earlier in the week, um, I, I made kind of an offhand reference to the the coaching situation and the the relationship between Bruce Boudreau and Jim Rutherford feeling untenable. And and you pushed back and said, actually, I think it's very tenable because there's all these reasons why they might not want to fire the coach, uh, why if things aren't going well, they might just lean into that. And that's fair. And I heard uh, today on the 32 Thoughts podcast, Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick, you know, Friedman kind of said he thinks the time is coming. And, and he wasn't reporting anything. I think this was just his opinion that the time is coming where the Canucks need to make a decision one way or another on Bruce Boudreaux, right? If you're truly that unhappy with the way he's coaching the team, uh, then you got to let him go. Or you just say, you know what, we're going to keep him and we're going to, you know, maybe not throw him under the bus publicly with such consistency going forward. Is, I don't want to, it feels like a very, um, a very kind of explosive and sensationalizing way to put it, but. Is Boudreaux's job on the line this weekend? Like, are two bad results, do they move the needle in the direction of, you know what, we do have to make a decision and make a change here? Or is it just the case, as you said earlier in the week, still that, you know what, it doesn't really matter what the results are going to be. They're going to uh, they're going to stick with it for the, for the time being. I'm of two minds here, right? I think if your goal is... I think if your goal is to transition on the fly, right, mm-hmm. as as the Canucks have talked about, mm-hmm. wanting to be good again in, co- in a couple of years, then I don't know how you can afford to go through a dysfunctional season in its entirety, considering the impact that could have on your ability to retain players at you know, fair or even favorable market value, uh, your ability to recruit free agents, your ability to recruit European free agents, the commitment you're able to make to younger players, uh, college free agents, European free agents, some of those key lines uh, of talent accumulation that this organization is cited wanting to prioritize and 
granted, you know, especially in the European side, did really well in in their first offseason. Like, all of that is hurt by having a dysfunctional season with a head coach who's not, you know, fully operating under the auspices of management's, you know, endorsement. If you're going to rebuild, though, then everything, like, all systems should be fired. All weapons should be fired for the purpose of getting the best possible draft pick you're able to get. And if that means keeping Bruce Boudreaux because you think that helps you lose, I don't think it helps you lose. I want to be clear here. But if that's the perspective, well, it, then yeah. then you do it. it then it, you do it. Then the pain is the point. I think the perspective wouldn't be that necessarily him as a coach helps you lose, but the the toxicity and the distraction and the firestorm that it creates helps you lose, right? That you're kind of creating a negative environment where it's no, going to be very difficult think- to have success. If you think Boudreaux's personally responsible for the lack of structure and details that this team plays with, then it might. Yeah. You know, I mean, I agree with you, to be clear. I'm just saying, trying to empathize and feel my way through this, that to me would be the argument to keep Boudreaux. But it's the same argument that I think leads you naturally to, you know, spending a couple of years that are... You know, quite miserable. And hey, by the way, I want to point this out too. I don't know if you saw this, but at The Athletic uh, recently, Corey Pronman wrote his way too early. I brought this up at the end of the show yesterday, but I still want to bring it up again. Yeah. Um, He brought brought up his way too early ranking of the top 2024 draft picks. And number one was Macklin Celebrini. Let's go. who Who is from which city? Vancouver. Vancouver and has direct ties to the Canucks organization in 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 his father, right? Uh, Rick Celebrini, who was the team's longtime medical trainer. So we're about to enter a draft season where um back-to-back drafts where Vancouver-born forwards, centermen are at the apex of consideration <laughs> to be the first overall pick. Now, it's way too early in Macklin Celebrini's yes. case to really like ensconce him there, especially because American winger Cole Eiserman, in particular, looks pretty electric every every sort of junior game he's playing, and there's a lot of buzz around him too. But if you're going to be punting seasons in this market in particular, and this market is crying out for this, in my opinion, but I, I don't think the organization agrees, so uh, you know I won't. I won't bang my fist on the table and say that's established fact, but my my perception is fans are desperate for a new direction of any kind. Having Bedard this year and then another Vancouver kid in Celebrini the next year gives you a way wider berth to sell hope in the short term. Like right now, if you're ever going to do it, there's two back-to-back top Vancouver-born prospects. And I'm not saying you do it and it's a failure if you don't get one of them, right? Like, I want to be clear. The lottery odds, odds are what they are. You can't expect in tanking to get the first overall pick. It's a nice-to-have. It's, it's not a guarantee by any means. And if you go into it thinking you're guaranteed it, you're yeah. doing it wrong, <laughs> right? It's about, it's about counting cards here, loading up the probability in your favor. It's not about expecting the best possible outcome. You hope for it. You don't plan for it. What you're planning to, for is to get two really good young players over the next two years if you're if you're intentionally going to lose games. But what I really want to note is 
having two Vancouver-born guys who are going to be the faces of these respective draft classes, playing at the World Juniors, playing at the U18s. Their highlights shared widely by Cam Robinson on Twitter. <laughs> like, th th is there a better time ever in the history of this sport for this specific team in this particular city to go through this than with back-to-back -back Vancouver centermen? at the top of consecutive draft classes? Like, both guys Canucks fans. Come on! Is this not simple? The other, the what other am I missing? Thing, uh, the other thing what am the, I missing? Hold on, the other thing with the 2024 draft is, and this is something you and I talked about on the show last year, which is can you kind of... Look, everyone knew... Connor Bedard, we've been talking about him for a long time, right? Everyone knew he was coming in the 2023 draft. He's but, one of those famous at yeah, 15. Yeah. You know, he's the, he's the best... I'm not saying he's a McDavid caliber prospect. That's completely unfair. But he's the best prospect since. Yes. But we still had the conversation last okay. year, right? Can you find a way to target teams that don't think they're going to be in the lottery in 2023, but have a chance to be, get that first round pick instead of the 2022 first round pick? And in some ways, even if it's just a little bit, you know, bump your odds of landing Connor Bedard going into 2023. Well, the thing now is, even if you're talking about, you know, a full-scale teardown rebuild, 2023 lottery picks aren't moving, right? Like any well, first-round <laughs> pick, any first-round pick that has a chance of landing Connor yeah. Bedard is not moving because he's that level of prospect. But can you get a 2024 yeah. first-round pick, right? You, that you probably can do. You probably can still target those. And, you know, Macklin Celebrini, obviously it's way too early to say, well, he's going to be the no doubt about it number one guy. He's not the, my very, uh, you know, non-expert understanding is that he's not nearly the same caliber of prospect of Connor Bedard because few players are. But you might be able to target those, and you might be able to meaningfully bump up your chances of getting him in that 2024 draft if you start with the proactive uh, measures now that are are not are lost to you when you're talking about Connor Bedard at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so. It's not just the Bedard effect that made it so that really everyone clung to those 2023 mm -hmm. firsts, right? It was also the Brandon Yeager effect and the Leo Carlson effect and the right. Like we we reached a point where there there's a feeling that there's like eight to twelve guys, <laughs> you know, seven for sure, but maybe eight to twelve guys at the top of that 2023 class with a chance to be really special. And that's sort of what what changed how teams regarded those picks, I think, over the course of certainly this offseason. We we really saw none no picks from any team even like with only the no doubt playoff teams dealt first round picks and even those teams see Calgary's trade for Sean Mon uh, with Sean Monahan had like paragraphs and paragraphs of protections. Yeah. On <laughs> so <laughs> you know it, it was a very different dynamic this time around than than previously now or than in previous seasons. I think twenty twenty four is more likely to be a customary draft class. Right? Far more likely. I, again, Iserman, uh, Levshunov's a big right-handed defenseman. I mean, there's a few guys that could change this logic. It's still too early to say for sure that it won't. But I do think it's far more likely to shape up normally. 2023 has been on our radar for a bit because of three guys. Then that group became seven as, as a bunch of 16- and 17-year-olds started to absolutely crush various leagues. Uh, 2024, again, still far out, still too far out to really say it, but I think that's more likely to be a customary draft class. So that's one where you could uh, perhaps 
perhaps go to my favorite strategy, the Seth Jones type strategy, and try to pick off a team that's not aware necessarily <laughs> of just of just how close they are to falling off. Um, but yeah, I mean, more than anything, the way I view it is just if you want to sell hope through a rebuild. In the Vancouver marketplace, there's never been a better time to do it. You've got back-to-back Vancouver-born centermen at the top of consecutive draft classes. This is an opportunity. If you're going to rebuild, you cannot miss, in my opinion. Uh, lots of texts coming in here, 650-650. Jeff and Langley texts in, Guys, you can't poison the water and create a toxic environment a toxic environment, and then flick the switch with Connor Bedard and start winning. Look at McDavid. The Oilers were awful for so long, they actually learned and we're learned and we're expecting to lose. You can't let this situation continue uh, and just collect draft picks. And look, I, 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 I'm sensitive to that, by the way. Well, I don't disagree that's with that why, logic at all. That's why, you know, I think Friedman made a great point on the 32 thoughts today that you can't, I don't think you can have this be the status quo between your coach and your president of hockey operations for a full season, right? Where it's just really, really awkward and really, really public. I, I don't think that's good for the health of a franchise. And that's also why I had as much as I've been a proponent for doing a rebuild, I have also not been a proponent for tanking. I've tried to, and I might be the only one of the only people in the in the city that like thinks there's a meaningful distinction. There certainly always used to be, but I've tried to maintain that there is in fact a meaningful distinction between tanking and rebuilding and I think you can rebuild without, you know, doing what Arizona is doing where you're desperately hoping your team is terrible going into the season because I do think that's a legitimate conversation and again I think that that really speaks to Friedman's point which is you kind of got to do one or the other with Boudreaux either you know fully back him do whatever you can to kind of reverse some of the criticism publicly and and restore confidence in him on a public facing level or you got to make a clean cut because I'm not sure who it benefits to have this situation linger on and you know you were talking about recruitment of players uh retaining your own ufas all those things like that that having that atmosphere could make more difficult well what about recruiting your next coach as well drancer and i know hey there's only 32 jobs so there's all they're always going to be a certain a uh, certain amount in demand but if you're in the bidding for a potential high profile coach who's going to have other options i'm not sure that letting Bruce Boudreaux kind of twist in the wind and be publicly criticized like this for a full season is is going to put you in the best spot to land a potential high-profile coach after Boudreaux either. But, but you're talking about – there's really only one guy you're Barry talking Trotz. about with that logic. Barry Trotz. Yeah. Uh, and maybe. I mean, <laughs> one thing to note is Barry Trotz's longtime agent is Gil Scott, who also represents Bruce Boudreaux. So – uh, sure. I mean, if that's your end game, you definitely have to be very careful <laughs> because there's, <laughs> yep. in fact, a very direct connection between those two, um, you know, epic, extremely successful bench bosses. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if that's your logic, then yes. But I think for the most part, you know, for, for your average coach like Rutherford's been around so long, I don't think this is going to be something that dings him long term in terms of how the coaching fraternity looks at the Vancouver job. You know, I, I, I mean, Rutherford's built up 30 years worth of relationships and reputations that I'm sure would govern things far more than however this plays out with Boudreaux. Well, and I guess the other part of it is if you do ever decide, if the organization does ever decide to go down more of a rebuild um, 
path that that kind of, you know, probably Barry Trotz isn't coming here for that anyways, right? So you're probably looking at a different caliber, a different type of coach. And as you said, then it becomes much less, uh, you know, at, at that point, it really does just become, hey, I, we're offering you an NHL coaching job. And that's very, very, uh, very appetizing for a lot of coaches. Uh, we're going to take, uh, we're going to finish, we're going to wrap up the show going into a big weekend, Hall of Fame weekend in Toronto, of course, on Monday. And we'll, we'll have more about this on Monday, but Henrik and Daniel Sedin and Roberto Luongo all go into the Hall of the Fame, Hall of Fame, three franchise greats for the Vancouver Canucks. Couple of games over the weekend as well against the Toronto Maple Leafs on Saturday and then again against the Boston Bruins on Sunday. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the games. We will be back on Monday to break it all down. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650.